Welcome to another episode of the Savvy Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Suma. And I'm your host, Moon. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing one of the most interesting subjects of modern science, genetic engineering. Yep. We're pretty excited about this because it is pretty much the only scientific field that may actually lead to the end of illnesses as we know them. And... Even the end of aging, perhaps? No more growing old. Well, yeah, it's the only field that promises to do that without having Elon Musk stick your brain inside a computer to achieve it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but while promises are all well and good, what are the facts? Well, the fact is that genetic engineering is a really broad term. But it basically means it's scientists' attempt to modify the genetic code of living things using biotechnology in order to change certain aspects about them. Yeah, but people have messed with the genetics of the world around them since long before they discovered biotechnology, or even genes themselves, uh, using processes such as selective breeding where they basically selected for the plants and animals that they wanted. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you're right. Take, for example, bananas, which originally were an ugly, oval-shaped fruit that had a ton of seeds and was really hard to peel. But now we have this fruit that looks like it was designed to be eaten. The thing is, it actually was designed to be eaten. Yeah, um, but uh, there are really a lot of examples of this. Uh, The most famous one has to be dogs. Everyone knows the story. Humans started out with... uh, basically wolves and over thousands of years they bred the ones that that had the features that they wanted and then abandoned the ones that didn't until we got the dogs of today with each breed designed to serve a specific purpose though these early ancestors of dogs were probably not purposefully bred by humans but rather they bred themselves in a way by living near human settlements you see Prehistoric humans, uh, according to this specific theory at least, weren't so different from us today. They lived in settlements and they produced trash, usually bones and other leftovers. These tended to pile up into a small pile uh, some distance from the settlement, uh, and those piles were basically trash heaps. And in fact, nowadays, those tend to be the first thing that archaeologists find when they discover a prehistoric human living area. Mm. Uh, These heaps of refuse used to attract all sorts of scavengers, of course, including canines and, uh, in this case specifically, wolves. Early humans probably tolerated them since they worked like a garbage disposal machine, right? Uh, Eating up all the trash that would have otherwise rotted and probably attracted insects and gotten people sick and stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And over time, these wolves were naturally selected to have... uh, uh, friendliness and trusting as more more important traits. Uh, I mean, think about it. Any wolf that lives near a human settlement uh, that's being aggressive towards the humans would probably be killed or driven away. But over time, the wolves would naturally select themselves uh, to be friendlier just because the wolves that are friendlier got more food by living closer to human settlements and thus were the ones who had children. They're the ones who bred. And so their children, their children would tend to inherit the traits that helped them be friendly and would also be selected to be friendlier, with the friendlier and friendlier wolves living closer and closer to the human settlements until eventually they became part of the settlement and even protected the settlement. And that's basically where dogs come from. Ancient genetic engineering. Wow. Yeah, uh, but back to you. How does this apply to bananas, though? I mean, it's not like a banana is going to be attracted to human settlements, right? (laughs) 
I don't know. I mean, ancient herds of wild bananas living on the outskirts of human villages does sound funny, to be honest. Um, oh, but yeah, uh, following up with the story about how wolves were basically, how dogs, I mean, were basically wolves, did you know that the pharaohs uh, actually bred cats in order to have them uh, protect their crops? Yeah, wow. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, cats aren't as friendly as dogs, sure, but... They are pretty friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah friendly yeah. enough, so that's and very, very interesting. they're very useful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, yep, exactly. So, um, uh, back to bananas. <laughs> so, um, maybe, it, maybe it's a story that is not as interesting as, as wild bananas living on the outskirts of human settlements, but the reality is pretty interesting as well. You see, when attempting selective breeding on plants, all you have to do is simply plant a lot of a specific type of plant that you want to get something from, say a fruit. And you just look at them as they grow. When they reach maturity, then the flowering phase, then the fruit phase, at that point all you have to do is compare the plants and you'll instantly find ones with, say, bigger or sweeter fruit. It doesn't matter what you're looking for, you'll find a plant that fits the requirement more than the rest. Yeah. So you just grow more of that plant. Yeah, and I assume that doesn't just apply to fruit, right? Well, yes, you're absolutely right. It's not just the fruit, but everything from the flowers to the leaves to even the height of the plant. Everything that's controlled by the plant's genetics, meaning everything really, has variability. Though the things that humans tended to focus on the most were the taste of the plant, especially the sweetness of the fruit, the amount of fruit that was produced by the plant, and the plant's ability to grow in harsh climates. Alright, that makes a lot of sense. Now I assume the selective breeding comes in? Yep. At this point, all you have to do is make sure that the next crop is only made up of the seeds of the plant that you liked. So now, you're selectively breeding the plants that you have into the plants that you want to have in the future, if that makes sense. <laughs> that does make a lot of sense. <laughs> Alright, so we just covered the basics of how genetic engineering was done a long time ago. But something the astute listener might have picked up on is that selective breeding is a process that takes a long time to get any effects. Well, yeah. I mean, you could be waiting for multiple generations before getting any usable results. Plus, the whole process depends heavily on luck. After all, you may not only be propagating positive traits on the uh, on the plants in the plants, sorry, uh, or the animals, but also negative ones as well. Yeah, inbreeding is a major risk when you end up pairing fewer and fewer plants or animals, for example. You end up with a lot of recessive genes being expressed by the offspring. This may lead to all sorts of genetic disorders. Uh-huh. A lot of modern dogs, uh, a lot of modern dog breeds actually suffer from this. I mean, pugs are cute, pugs are very cute, but their squished faces cause them a lot of breathing problems, and that ends up leading to an early death for many of these animals. Yeah, um... Wait, you think pugs are cute? Oh, come on, they're really cute. Pugs are kind of gross, not gonna lie. What? Uh, yeah. What? Yeah, they... they Look, are you kidding they me? slobber all they're over so the cute. place. That's they're what makes faces. them cute. Really? Yes. All right. They're all right. very cute. All right. The all fact right. that okay. you think pugs are gross makes me want to end this episode right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the same applies to Persian cats, by the way. Humans bred them as well to have 
uh, more squished in faces. Oh no, those those are gr gross. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure you're doing that because I have Persian cats. But the... oh no, I I meant like the cats that uh, that are like inside out. You know the cat that has like skin and it has no hair. That's not a Persian cat. Oh, I thought it was. And that's uh, that's by the way a naturally occurring trait that was also genetically. Uh, engineer by simply uh, selectively breeding the cats that had that genetic trait yeah those it, cats were gross yeah it wasn't like gross. they're not gross they're but, so gross but <laughs> it wasn't like somebody uh, bred cats that had shorter and shorter hair until they had no hair at all specific cats just appear naturally with no hair and so people just bred them until they had no hair and they're called sphinx cats oh yep 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 anyway uh, well, dogs and cats are a bit of an obvious example, uh, but something that may be less obvious is that this same issue applies to uh, plants. Because, you know, uh, when breeding plants, you also end up using fewer and fewer parent plants as you st start to reach the specific goals that you had in mind. And eventually, uh, you'll start having inbreeding problems with plants as well. As they become more and more similar genetically, they'll also be more and more vulnerable to the same illnesses, for example. Something that has, in the past, caused a single illness to wreak havoc on thousands of acres of farms all over the world. Including to bananas, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was just because they were so inbred that they were extremely vulnerable to the same illness. Mm. But recently, humans have developed new ways of genetically modifying living organisms to reach their goals much faster with a lower risk of inbreeding. Yeah. Designer seeds, for example, were made by using plant tissue from plants that were barely related, that had almost no chance of naturally pairing using classic selective breeding techniques. This led to the creation of plants that had traits from both parents very quickly. Mm -hmm. Take for example, a designer species of rice called new rice for Africa, or as they like to call it, Nerica. They... Wait, Nerica? <laughs> Nerica as in N-E-R-I-C-A, Nerica? That's not how you abbreviate new rice for that's, Africa. That's what I thought of when looking it up. Either N-R-A, new rice for Africa, which I'm sure you've... You're going to get a bit of confusion there. Or NRFA, if you're going to abbreviate the F for four. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you the OCD inside of me was really triggered by this when I read the term. Well, it sounds nice. Nerica, at least. Well, hey, I'm wrong. not the one who came up with the name, but the people that did, mainly the African Development Bank, Japan, and the UN, created the rice as a hybrid of Asian and African rice. Mm-hmm. Because while African rice was great at growing in Africa, it had low yield, something that they were trying to fix, and they succeeded. Oh. It had an increase in yield from 1 ton per hectare to 2.5 tons per hectare. Oh my god. Yeah, and when using the fertilizer, they can increase it up to 5 tons per hectare. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, it's, wonder, it's crazy. I wonder if that's the rice that we get here. It's pretty cheap. But... No, I think we get the Egyptian rice? Oh, well, I mean, Egypt is in Africa, so maybe... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> maybe that's they're using point. the same rice. I keep... You keep, I keep forgetting, forgetting that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of people seem to. But anyway, that's a massive change. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a relatively old technology by today's standards. Selective breeding of plants, even when you're pairing plant tissue. That only came out, like... Uh, came out <laughs> that was only that only started being used uh, you know 
in the 30s and 40s. Mm. Uh, but the 30s and 40s are pretty, you know, pretty long gone by now. And yeah. newer techniques have started to come into, uh, come into use. For example, uh, genetic modification directly by inserting and removing genes from plants. No longer would you have to breed plants. Instead, all you have to do is use their RNA uh, by using RNA interference to stop specific plant mRNA from being created uh, or from creating specific negative traits in their genetic uh, code. Now, I think everyone knows what DNA is, but can you tell us more about RNA and how it's related to DNA? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, DNA is a molecule or material that basically describes every single aspect of a living organism. It's passed down from parent to child, and every single cell in a specific living creature has the exact same DNA at the center of it. Now, the information uh, stored in DNA, the one that's used to build that living creature, uh, is made up of four different chemical bases. Uh, these bases are usually shortened to their initials. A, G, C, and T, and they basically take on the form of a long strand of repeating sequences to describe the organism. So basically the A, G, C, and T repeat in different patterns all throughout this strand billions of times describing the creature. Hmm, mm -hmm. that actually sounds a lot like code. Yeah. I may be thinking about this because that's what I do for a living, but if the four bases are the different commands, then the DNA is basically a program made up of billions of commands, if you think about it. Yeah. A program that just describes how to build a living creature. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it's basically assembly code. Now, RNA in this case is responsible for running short parts of this code. If the DNA is your entire, uh, like, uh, Application, uh, your RNA is basically a compiler that just like uh, interprets specific sections of the code when it's needed. Uh, it's sort of like a middleman between the DNA and the cells. Uh, while DNA holds the genetic info relating to all the cells in the body, RNA, and specifically messenger RNA or mRNA, is responsible for much more focused behavior, usually the manufacturing of a specific protein in the cells based on instructions in the DNA. Ah, I see. And by adding or removing it, we can control the creation of the proteins in the body, which can be used to change the behavior of a specific organism in a specific way, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, that reminds me of uh, the COVID vaccines, which I think work in a very similar way, right? Uh, sort of. The COVID vaccines are also based on mRNA, specifically the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Uh, but they don't actually inhibit any genes in your body, nor do they modify them. Instead, scientists develop their own mRNA that teaches your immune system how to fight COVID. And this isn't genetically modifying you? Well, genetic engineering was used to develop the vaccine, of course, but all that mRNA does once it enters your body is enter the cells near the point of injection and get them to just start producing a protein, which is what mRNA usually does anyway. It doesn't interact with your DNA and it doesn't have any long-term impact other than training your immune system. However, the, ge the whole genetic engineering aspect of it is an argument that is heavily used by people on social media who don't who are against the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I guess people just don't get how it works. But uh, I'm definitely a bit more on board now that uh, 
Um, I know it doesn't have any long-term effects other than uh, relating to your immunity, though I'll be honest, I would have taken it anyway because honestly, like, I, I would rather have, you know, be genetically engineered to not have COVID than to get COVID. Insert a chip into my brain, just end this pandemic, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> based on the proteins that are produced. In the vaccine's case, the protein that is produced is called the spike protein. You know how the COVID virus looks like a ball that is surrounded by spikes? Yep, yep. Well, that is the spike protein. And by itself, it's completely harmless, actually. However, it is what gives COVID its signature crown shape. And it uses this protein to gain access to the cells in your body. But when the vaccine causes your cells to produce the, pro the protein by itself, the body will detect that the protein is unusual and will destroy it. Therefore, remembering what the virus looks like if it enters the body without even using the virus, like that's, just, that's oh, insane. Yeah, definitely. Wow. You know what really modifies your genes? CRISPR. Oh yeah, let's let's talk about CRISPR. Okay, so CRISPR, unlike what you would think, is not a sandwich that you would get at a restaurant. Which when I first heard about it, I was like, ugh, that sounds yummy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually a technology that revolutionized gene editing. So far, we've been talking about combining different genes, but we haven't talked much about editing specific genes yet. Oh yeah, and uh, I'm pretty sure no one thought we were about to transition to talking about sandwiches. Just, just, just putting it out there. I don't know, we might, yeah. Yeah. Don't wanna. Maybe okay. another episode. Yep, yep, exactly. We'll, we'll, the technology we'll... of sandwiches mm. revolutionizing the food industry. <laughs> I don't know, there is some pretty interesting stuff there. We might actually do that. Yep, yep, well... Leave us a comment on our posts on social media and we'll see. Tell okay, really? To, tell us what you want us to make an episode about. <laughs> Alright. Well, before CRISPR, it used to cost a huge amount of money to even edit a single gene. That is, until two scientists going by the names... Um, I say going by the names... As Under the pseudonym. Yep. <laughs> well, they're called Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. And, uh, oh, by the way, you must have heard about them. They got, like, the Nobel Prize this year. Not oh, this wow. year, last year, in 2020. Oh. oh, wow. Yeah. CRISPR is basically a naturally occurring gene editing system in bacteria that happens naturally within bodies, okay? <laughs> so here's how it works. The bacteria collects pieces of DNA from any viruses that attack them. Now, the bacteria then uses these pieces to create DNA segments known as CRISPR arrays. Mm -hmm. Now, the CRISPR arrays allow the bacteria to remember or memorize how the viruses look like. So, if the viruses attack again, the bacteria can produce RNA segments from the CRISPR arrays to target the virus's DNA. Wow, it's amazing how even bacteria have these complex systems working in the background just to protect them from viruses. Well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. So, researchers figured out a way to mimic this process through a technology they named CRISPR-Cas9. A technique that uses a process almost identical to the one used by the bacteria. Except instead of using virus DNA, they use custom RNA to recognize a specific DNA sequence that is then cut using the Cas9 protein 
at the targeted location. Gene splicing. Wow. Exactly. Gene splicing. It's actually a bit insane if you think about it, because most gene editing applications using this technology that have been tested so far, tested, tested so far, have been implemented for reading genes of diseases. So scientists program CRISPR to remember what an unwanted DNA sequence looks like. And so that way it can modify genes in a lab according to what they need. This is a revolutionary discovery. Uh, it can be easy to go down a rabbit hole when you're editing genes. Who's to say scientists won't edit a baby's genes to make them taller or smarter? Oh yeah, that's actually a whole other thing. I'm sure you're familiar with the term designer babies? Yep. Yeah, well, <laughs> when I first heard this concept, I actually imagined like a bunch of babies on their drawing tablets just designing visual identities and logos as freelancers. <laughs> oh I was slightly disappointed to oh. learn I was wrong, to say the least. Turns out... <laughs> Turns out designer babies are babies who have had their genes edited and altered when they were just embryos, often removing or modifying genes that may increase the chances of certain illnesses. This genome modification can end hereditary and often chronic diseases, which usually travel through generations, like sickle cell anemia and Down syndrome. Wow, how long has this been around? Well, while genetic screening the process of analyzing an embryo genome had to, uh, to basically check for genetic defects that may lead to disease has been around since like the late 80s. It is often referred to as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or PGD for short. Mm -hmm. Now, PGD here actually makes sense, like <laughs> Nerica. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take that, Nerica people. The first application... Take that, Japan. Exactly. <laughs> Now, the first application of an actual designer baby happened in 2019 in China. Can you imagine? Wow, the genetic engineering world is also new. Uh, so everything seems to have happened within the last five years, eh? Yeah, so the scientist's name is uh, He Jiankui. Um, and he announced that he had created the first human genetically edited babies. They were these two Chinese twin girls. And um, basically their father had HIV. So Dr. He was trying to prevent HIV infections in newborns. That's, that was his defense, basically. So he forged the approval documents that allowed him to complete the experiment. Of course, this implementation of the designer baby was not authorized by any entity, and it is actually illegal. So he and the other scientists with him on the team ended up in jail, and they got a sentence of three years. Uh, but it won't be long before somebody gets approval to do this legally, I think. Yeah, that's very true. There's so much potential for this technology to be used for good, curing illnesses, improving quality of life, and potentially mm -hmm. even increasing human lifespans. After all, recent research indicates that much of what we consider to be symptoms of aging, such as organ function degradation, uh, is genetic in nature. Especially our vulnerability to oxidative damage and genetic instability in just people as they get older and older. Well, yeah, obviously I can't wait for that, but uh, uh, what do you mean by oxidative damage? Like, like rusting? Yeah, uh, not exactly rusting, but very similar to rusting. You see, oxygen is a 
corrosive uh, chemical. Mm -hmm. It causes rusting, it causes oxidation, and all sorts of things, including our bodies. Uh, usually by reacting to cell membranes, to proteins, nucleic acids in the body and damaging them. And over time, it's uh, going to build up damage to your uh, cells. That's why foods with a lot of antioxidants uh, like carrots and dark chocolates are recommended uh, by doctors. Well, based on this information, I am going to be consuming a lot more dark chocolate <laughs> from now on. Yeah, I don't think you need an excuse. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, but uh, genetic like engineering... like my daily chocolate intake. <laughs> you do, you do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, really, though. There's definitely a potential dark side to this world, and we need to be careful of it. Um, it's not out of the question, for example, that genetic engineering of embryos might be out of reach for regular people, just too expensive. And with only rich people being able to have the procedure performed on their children, this could lead to an even bigger divide in our societies. Imagine the children of the rich being uh, smarter, healthier, and living longer than the children of the poor. This could only end in a steeper and steeper difference between classes, and it can destroy society as a whole. It's not just, uh, it's not like we have a lack of uh, reasons for people to dehumanize each other at the moment. Imagine if there was a class of people who could objectively call themselves superior to everyone else because of their genetics. Where would that put humanity? Uh, what do you think? On the one hand, this makes me think that the only real way to maintain a balanced field is to just maybe not genetically engineer people. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe even ban the technology altogether. Yeah. But I unfortunately don't think that it can be banned at this point. We've already opened Pandora's box and scientists and nations all over the world have access to this tech. All we can do now is try to make sure that everyone has access to it. Yep. Because from what you're saying, it seems like we're heading towards a world of superhumans. And in that kind of world, I think the worst thing you can be is a regular person. However, even with all the humans being so-called quote-unquote superhumans, I can't help but think about other elements of life and how they'll be affected like living conditions, for example, uh, global warming, animals, the environment, how will superhumans walking on Earth, whom I assume will have a much longer lifespan, affect the elements around them? It's, it's, it's like going down a rabbit hole, if I'm honest. Yeah, that's a very valid opinion. But I think we'll leave the final decision to the listeners. What do you guys think? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tweet at us on Twitter at SavvyTechPod or leave us a comment on the episode's post on Instagram at SavvyTechPodcast and we'll make sure to get back to you on that. Don't forget to rate this podcast if you like it. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Savvy Tech Podcast and we'll see you next time.